This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's talk about expulsion. This is an emergency. It's going so fast. That's why you're standing there, because of that temper tantrum that day. How many of you would want to be spoken to that way? For that yearning to have attention. That's what you wanted. Well, you're getting it now. The reason that I believe the sponsor of this legislation, of this resolution, spoke that way is because he's comfortable doing it. Because there's a decorum that allows it. So now the whole country has had an opportunity to see what is coming to a state house near you. <laughs> this is not going to be limited to Tennessee unless we are vigilant. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the law and the rule of law and the Supreme Court, where accepting undisclosed half-million-dollar luxury trips to Indonesia, gifted by a private donor, is just called July. On Thursday, ProPublica published a barnstormer about Justice Clarence Thomas's vacation habits, and it's both shocking and totally unsurprising. On Friday, Justice Thomas released a rare-for-him public statement explaining that he had been told that he was complying with the old ethics rules and he will surely comply with the new ones. Okay. And while the ethics rules will seemingly never catch up with the justice's conduct, the long arm of the law seems to have tagged one former president. As we previewed on our last show, Donald J. Trump was indicted and arraigned this week by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office on 34 felony counts of falsifying business records. And... As the nation's eyes were glued to footage of a hall outside a courtroom in New York City, the Wisconsin Supreme Court swung decisively in the direction of voting rights, abortion rights, and democracy. In the Tennessee State House, however, on Thursday evening, a Republican supermajority swung in the direction of large-scale vote suppression by ejecting a pair of young Black legislators for, quote, decorum violations because they participated in a protest led by students, parents, and educators over that state's refusal to do anything at all to stop mass shootings in schools. We are going to try to talk about all of this on this week's show, speaking first to Sherilyn Eiffel, who's been sounding the alarm about the old school power grabs in new clothing in the States. And then we're going to turn to Professor Steve Vladek on Justice Clarence Thomas's vacation plans, the Supreme Court's increasingly opaque and unknowable processes, and what all of this means for democracy. Later on in the show, in our Slate Plus segment, Mark Joseph Stern will join us to discuss some things we couldn't pack into the main show, including the Supreme Court's justice optional ethics rules, that incredibly significant Wisconsin Supreme Court race, and a decision from SCOTUS on transgender athletes in West Virginia. And as ever, thank you so much for supporting our work. 
We know you value the journalism that we do here at Slate, and we need your support to make this show and all our other journalism possible. By joining our membership program, Slate Plus, you are supporting that work, and you'll enjoy all the benefits of membership, like listening to this show ad-free, and you get access to Slate Plus exclusive segments like my conversations with Mark. And you'll never hit a paywall at Slate.com. Sign up for Slate Plus to support us and to access members-only benefits. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Amicus Plus. That's Slate.com Amicus Plus. And as ever, thank you so much for supporting our work. Last week after a school shooting in Nashville that left six people dead, Three Democratic lawmakers representing parts of Nashville, Knoxville, and Memphis took to the floor of the Republican-controlled Tennessee House chamber. They did that as part of a student walkout demanding meaningful gun reform. Now, on Thursday night of this week, two of them, Representative Justin Jones and Representative Justin J. Pearson, both young black men, were expelled from that house. The third representative who participated, a white woman, Gloria Johnson, was not removed when the vote fell one short of the two-thirds supermajority required to oust a member. This expulsion has the effect of stripping tens of thousands of Tennesseans of their elected representation. No House member has ever been removed from elected office for violating decorum rules. A few weeks ago, Sherilyn Eiffel wrote what I think is a vitally important piece in Slate, warning that stripping democratically elected lawmakers of their powers is the new vote suppression, and that it is happening all around the country, and that it is disproportionately being used to target black officials. What happened this week in Tennessee is only the ugliest, most explicit effort to say that majorities and supermajorities will happily use their power to shut down protected speech and to strip elected officials of their powers, and in so doing, to ensure that democracy itself operates only for their own benefit. Her larger point was that this is happening everywhere, not just in the instances that make it to primetime news shows. Sherilyn is a civil rights lawyer, she's a law professor, and she served as president and director counsel of the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund from 2013 to 2022. She's a senior fellow at the Ford Foundation and a longtime friend of this podcast. When Sherilyn says something is happening, it is generally a good idea to believe that it is happening. Sherilyn, thank you for making time for us. Thank you for making time for this issue. So important. I don't even actually know how to ask the question I want to ask, but this feels like a break the glass moment uh, for democracy. It also feels as though it's a direct rebuke to watching the polls to see which presidential candidate is popular because it assumes that voting still matters. Yeah. You know, I wrote the piece in Slate because I felt the need to ring the alarm. You know, there's quite a bit more about this in the book that I'm writing. And I actually hesitated to write the piece. I said, you know, stop doing this. Just focus on your book. Finish the chapter. And then I just said, you know what? My book's not coming out till next year. And we may not have that long. This is an emergency. It's going so fast. And so I wrote the piece to try and direct people's attention to something that has been going on. It is new, but also old. It's an old tactic 
that had been used in the South in, in jurisdictions where Black people were beginning to be elected to local commissions. And we see it happening all over the country. And, you know, those of us who are used to focusing on voter suppression have to kind of understand that the opposition, that those who stand against democracy, those who stand against racial equality, those who stand against equal justice under law, those people understand that targeting voting practices is only one means of getting to the ultimate goal, which is always about power. And in this moment in which Republicans have gerrymandered their way into supermajorities in a number of legislatures in which the accelerant of Trump has allowed them to leave behind. They have just ditched, you know, ethics, shame, decorum, due process, all in an effort to hold on to power. And so what we're seeing now, the tactic we're seeing is that they're going directly for the power. Forget about the voting practices. We're seeing all over the country Republicans maneuvering to take power away from Democratic elected officials. We see it in Wisconsin, where the legislature has taken so many powers away from the governor once Governor Evers was elected. We're seeing it in Kentucky. Andy Bashir, the Democratic governor of Kentucky, the red state, the legislature met and passed bills with a large enough margin to override his veto to take powers away from him you know, the ability to appoint people to executive boards, to bring lawsuits, all all kinds of power that normally rests with the governor. And I started the piece with the most important one, which is Mitch McConnell, who, you know, was reported a number of years ago to be ill. This is before his recent fall from which he is recovering. He began working and pressuring the Tennessee legislature to pass a bill, which they did pass over the override of the veto of the governor, that would remove the governor's power to do what governors can do in 35 states, which is if a United States senator steps down for some reason, they can appoint someone to fill that unexpired term. And so Kentucky passed that law. That means that if Mitch McConnell steps down, and there are many rumors that he may do so soon, the governor would have had the power to appoint a Democrat to that seat. And given what we have going on in the Senate, you know how tight that is. But now it will have to be a Republican and it will have to be a Republican suggested by the executive committee. What we saw Thursday in Tennessee is all of a piece with this. The removal of these two young legislators for rules violation, legislators who have only been in office since January. These are two new, fresh, spanking new legislators who entered that chamber carrying with them the voices of thousands of young people who walked out of school in Tennessee to protest a week after the terrible massacre at the Covenant Christian School in which three children and three adults were killed. The young people want serious, real gun legislation. And these representatives were carrying that voice forward into the chamber. They violated the rules of the chamber, or shall we say the decorum? Frankly, for me, it's not clear that they violated the rules. And we can talk about that in a minute. But they were expelled, which is extraordinary, Dahlia. This doesn't happen. This doesn't happen in state houses. Expulsion is the most extreme sanction. And it doesn't happen often because when you expel someone, it is a sanction that you are visiting upon the voters who elected those people. So I just want to be super precise about what you're saying, Sherilyn. This is not complicated, but it's also existential. What you're saying is, in some sense, we're always fighting the last war. 
And we are having conversations about vote suppression and conversations about gerrymandering. And what you're saying is those are problems that have gotten us to this moment of supermajority rule. And as a consequence, we're now at the next phase, which is just stripping elected officials of power. And that in some sense, this is very effective if you simply say, I don't care if you're elected, you can't do your job. Uh, All of the prior conversations we had about democracy suppression kind of, in some sense, fade away because now we're just talking about pure majority rule or supermajority rule. And I I think the other thing that's really useful is a good piece in the Washington Post saying, not only is this happening around the country in terms of stripping elected officials of power, it's happening around the country in terms of protest, where we're seeing uh, gerrymandered supermajorities saying, for instance, in Florida, yeah, no, you can't can't come protest here. So this comes down to speech in a deep way. And I do want to talk about the rules violation you just mentioned. But I also want to note, um, Joyce Vance has been tweeting about Julian Bond uh, and how you actually cannot be expelled for acts of speech and protest and political uh, debate, right? Well, that's part of why the Speaker of the Tennessee House described the actions of what are being called the Tennessee Three as insurrection. (laughs) That is why he made claims that somehow they were inciting violence, which clearly they were not. This was a punishment. This was to show a show of power. Um, And that's part of white supremacy, too, and part of authoritarianism and part of the move against democracy is to flex. We see Ron DeSantis doing this quite a bit in Florida, doing this with Disney. It is to do things to show that we can do it, that you can't stop us from doing it. And I, I do think, however, that the good news is it's a powerful overreach. And I would say that Thursday demonstrated that. I could not be prouder of these two young men, of Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, for the way they deported themselves and for the presentation they made in the well, because what they did was not only did they uh, vindicate themselves and the young people they came to represent, but they pointed out what has been happening in the House, which is that Democrats have not been allowed to speak. They have had their mics cut by the speaker. The Republicans are so drunk with power that they regularly call the question of legislation with no debate that they have been run over. And that's why they entered the chamber with bullhorns to make sure that their voices were heard because their mics have been cut. So now the whole country has had an opportunity to see what is coming to a state house near you. (laughs) This is not going to be limited to Tennessee unless we are vigilant. And I, I hate to say this, Dahlia, but unfortunately, we cannot actually switch to this new challenge. We actually have to fight on multiple fronts because voter suppression still is important and powerful because gerrymandering still is important. We are going to get two decisions from the Supreme Court, right, on the gerrymandered, you know, southern states. So it is not that we um, have to abandon that fight in order to fight the new fight. It is that we there are multiple fronts and we have to be fighting on all of these fronts. And while we are fighting on those other fronts, we need to recognize that the Republicans have opened a new front on this war. And that front is game over. As you describe it, it's existential because essentially it is heads I win, tails you lose. Even if you elect the person you want to office, we will simply take their power. 
And maybe if people have trouble understanding the significance of that, the most powerful and high profile example of it is taking away the power of a president to appoint a Supreme Court justice to fill a vacant seat. And that's what Mitch McConnell did and the Republicans did to Barack Obama. And the consequences of that, right, the consequences of that have been felt powerfully throughout this country. That's what we're facing at every level. And we have to be able to fight that, too. The question is, how do you fight it? Your correction is exactly right. I I certainly wasn't trying to say, oh, you know, we abandon fights around gerrymandering or vote suppression. I think you're quite right. Those were building to this, which is the next the next uh, the next front. Um, I also just want to quote because it's so illustrative of the problem. Same Washington Post piece quotes Ron DeSantis saying, my view was I may have received 50% of the vote, but I earned 100% of the executive power and I intend to use it to advance our agenda. This is Ron DeSantis speaking at a recent gathering, according to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. And this too is your point, that you can get slim, slim majorities and then leverage into not just the power to promote your agenda, but the power to suppress, actually suppress elected officials on the other side. And that's why all the issues of turnout and registration and so forth remain important, you know, to dramatize it. Imagine if, uh, what did, what did, how many votes did Trump say he needed? All I need are 78,000 votes, right? So let's suppose he'd gotten them plus one. What do we think he would be doing with power? You think he would be listening and sharing, um, right? You know, B- Biden is listening and trying to share, right? Uh, that's not what Trump would be doing. So we have to understand that what they have decided is that they are going to run the tables. And they have gone so far out there, Dahlia, that there is no cabin for their actions. If you watched any of, and I really encourage people to go on C-SPAN and try to watch some of that presentation. We are seeing people who are drunk with power. Super majorities make people drunk with power who have no other ethical or democratic interests that would cabin them. And we are going to be living under this unless we get very serious and very strategic. And unless we wake up the elements of our society, I'm not talking about, you know, the people who've never voted. I'm talking about the people that you and I know who are people of influence, who are people of power, but who I suppose will be okay whether we live in a democracy or not. But it's time to call the question on whether people think that it's okay for us not to be a democracy. Because if you believe that it's important for us to live in a democracy and you see that democracy is in peril in this way, then it is battle stations. It should be all hands on deck. When I started tweeting about the Tennessee Three, they didn't have lawyers. No one was contacting them. What is going on? To me, it's quite astonishing that we allowed this to happen. Those young men went into the well with no idea of what the process would be, back to the due process question. They had never received a notification of the timing they would have to speak, of who would be allowed to cross-examine them. They had no idea. There was no process associated with it. The last time someone was expelled from the Tennessee Senate was in 2016, and an ad hoc committee was reported to investigate the possibility of expulsion, issued a report, that report and all the evidence in it was shared with all the members of the House before the trial and hearing, it took months. These young men (laughs) participated in a protest last week and they were expelled yesterday. 
with no investigation, no notification of the procedures and how they could protect themselves beyond a bare bones resolution saying they would have the opportunity to participate in debate. It is unbelievable that this kind of due process violation could happen on the floor of a state house sanctioned by the speaker of that state house. And we don't have people speaking up all over the country just on that point who care about due process, who maybe disagree with these young men, but who surely should believe that before we expel duly elected members of a state house, that we afford them due process, that there is an investigation of the charges against them, that a video is not introduced on the floor as it was yesterday with no authentication, no idea who made the video that they showed, no timestamps to determine whether the actions that the video showed were undertaken while the legislature was in recess or while they were in live session. The kinds of things that you and I would think of as just absolutely you know, essential, low-hanging low fruit, the basic elements of due process. And none of that happened yesterday, and they were flagrant when it was brought to their attention. There were excellent House members who raised these very issues, and they were completely ignored. So this rush to remove these two young men, yes, you're right, it is a watershed moment. And what is good about it, Dahlia, that I think the speaker did not anticipate, is that the whole nation saw it. He thought this was going to be something in his temper tantrum because the night of the protest, he tweeted out the video from, the, again, the video apparently taken by another House member. He tweeted it out and he tagged Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Candace Owens, Tucker Carlson. That's who the Speaker of the Tennessee House is. And he described it as the Occupy movement coming to the Tennessee Senate. So I think he thought this was going to be some quick thing that he would just do to show who's in charge. You know, it was a very kind of James Eastland kind of I'm in charge move. And that didn't happen because we did ring the alarm and because people were watching and because these young men are extraordinary because they were prepared and because they were unafraid to tell the truth. They told on the speaker, they told on other members. For years, one of your colleagues who was an admitted child molester sat in this chamber, no expulsion. One member sits in this chamber who was found guilty of domestic violence, no expulsion. We had a former speaker sit in this chamber who is now under federal investigation, no expulsion. We have a member still under federal investigation, no expulsion. We had a member pee in another member's chair in this chamber. No expulsion. In fact, they're in leadership. But in the, in the governor's administration. And I think that was important to wake up more people to this issue, but also for people in these southern state houses where they have believed they are working under a cloak, doing whatever they want to understand that we are watching. Sherilyn, I think you've just identified what have been two longstanding themes in our conversations over the years. One is that power without process is not law. It's just power. It's the it's the appearance of law. And the other thing, and I think it's almost the most important thing we can lift up for listeners who are as um, agitated as we are. And I just want to really re-up uh, what Sherilyn just said, which is w watch the video, the spectacle of 
white Republicans lecturing these young men like bullies. It is really, really grief-inducing that we are here. But I want to say that the other theme I think that you are zeroing in on here is that it's not going to be enough to watch the videos and be enraged. And it's not going to be enough to pour money into these special election races. This is systemic. This is everywhere. This is coming soon to a state house near you. And that the work isn't to just be outraged. The work is to fix systemic process what seems like boring issues of democracy repair, because that is everyday work. And all of us, and I think you're quite right, people that you and I know, don't quite see it as the break the glass moment that it is. Yeah, no, absolutely true. And this is what I mean about kind of waking up. I think what we do, what we've been trained to do, and largely this is a result of of kind of media stuff, is that we wait for the next election. We're just waiting. You know, we're not calling anybody. We're not calling our representatives and saying, have you issued a statement in solidarity with (laughs) with the Tennessee three? What are your views about that expulsion? We're not putting our own representatives on blast and telling them, you know, you better not. We expect something different from you. We're not showing up at county council meetings. And and the fact that, you know, it is that is the council that will be able to appoint these two young men back into their seats if they choose to do so shows you again, here's a low salience election, right? County commission races, county council races that very often people pay no attention to or don't vote in or don't vote in the primary, right? And yet they have the power to appoint these two young men back into their seats. So it goes back to the point again of, you know, that I'm always saying, leave no power on the table. Every race, every elected official has power. And if we are going to save our democracy at this critical moment, we need all of it. We need all of it. We need your public safety commission, your railroad commissioner, your sheriff. You know what's happening with this constitutional sheriff's movement, right? Of people who think that they are the only real law enforcement in our country. To the extent that we have abdicated our need to address these offices, we've got to get very, very serious. That means not just voting, but showing up at meetings and and calling them and asking them what their views are and calling it out when you think that they've done something wrong and paying attention to the other big story, which was the expose on Justice Thomas taking luxury trips. What are we doing? Does the Supreme Court sit above our democracy or within our democracy? If they sit within it, then we better figure out how to make it clear to them (laughs) that they do. And that means by creating a code of ethics that is enforceable and to which they must adhere. And there being consequences when they don't adhere to it. We've got to get serious about what democracy really means. It is not that I'm free to do whatever I want to do and I can say whatever I want to say and I can drive as big a car as I want and you won't take away my steak and fried eggs. That's not what democracy is. It's work. And we are being challenged now to recognize all the ways in which we have to work harder. Whatever we were doing before, maybe it was okay. It's not okay now. It has to be different. Sherilyn Eiffel served as president and director counsel of the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund from 2013 to 2022. She's a senior fellow at the Ford Foundation. She is also the source of sometimes my only sanity on days like today. (laughs) Sherilyn, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Dahlia. I appreciate it. We're taking a short break. We'll be talking at Rondack Chairs and Emergency Orders with Professor Steve Vladek when we come back.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So Cheryl and Eiffel asked a really vital question at the end of our conversation there about whether the Supreme Court sits above our democracy or within it. And after the week we've just had, I am so very grateful to turn to someone who is thinking really hard about questions like that one. He's one of my favorite pundits, professors, and people, Steve Vladek. He's the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas School of Law, and his amazing new book is The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic, will be published by Basic Books next month. It's both fitting and kind of maddening that Steve is here to talk about what happens in the shadows, just as we are learning about judicial junkets to very sunny places that actually happen in plain sight, at least of the folks on the super yacht. So, Steve, uh, welcome to Amicus. Congratulations on the book. Thank you, Dahlia. It's great to be back. Um, I really did try to get the publisher to put your initial reaction to the book so effing good <laughs> on the front cover, um, but I, I, I was not able to persuade them. It is so effing good. That could be the blurb. I also couldn't get them to do catchy but worn out rhetoric, Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> you know that I always wanted to put Sam Alito's Some Hack uh, on my book, uh, but no, couldn't get that either. Okay, listen, it's been a week. It's been a week. Uh, and I thought we should just, <laughs> as one does, start with the news. Tuesday, indictment, arraignment, speech about Hunter Biden and stolen elections. Can you just give us your quickie top line thoughts about whatever it was <laughs> that we witnessed in Manhattan this week? I think we witnessed the media beclowning itself for the most part. I think we got a rare and a vantage point of the very, very first step of a New York state criminal prosecution, which, you know, there's this remarkable divide among the commentariat between those who have ever practiced in New York state courts and those who have not about how much of this is weird and how much of this is just how New York rolls. But, I, I, you know, to me, the, the real headline out of New York is that, like, everyone needs to chill. Even if this case, even if the the Bragg prosecution is the only thing that happens to former President Trump, these are still incredibly early days. The odds that there's going to be a superseding indictment, I think, are virtually 100 percent. And, you know, I, I think if the noise out of Atlanta and Washington signifies anything, it's that it could be pretty soon when this is an afterthought <laughs> and when, you know, Debates about the criminal prosecution of former President Trump have moved to charges where no one is publicly trying to say this is not a crime. 
Do you want to explain for listeners what you just said about the superseding indictment and 100%? Because I'm guessing that they haven't been listening to the commentary yet. They should have. So, I mean, a lot of folks who, you know, have fashioned themselves New York criminal procedure experts looked at the indictment and looked at the statement of facts put out by the district attorney's office and said, that's it. When the reality is that in these kinds of cases, especially white collar cases, there's a long tradition in New York state courts. I, I say this as a proud member of the New York bar, right, that there's a long tradition in New York state courts of sort of laying down the marker of the first indictment being the preceding initiation phase. Part of why it takes so long to get from this step to the next steps is because it's sort of baked into New York procedure that things are going to evolve and that prosecutors, as they learn more, might update the indictment, might file more information. But also, you know, I think folks are assuming that, like, this is meant to educate us, the public. If you're the prosecutor, there are reasons why you don't want to put all your cards on the table until you have to. And so for those who read the indictment, read the statement of facts and said, oh, I'm not convinced, here's just a little reminder that if this ever goes to a jury, it will only be after a whole lot of additional stuff has happened and that no one will be measuring former President Trump's guilt or innocence on these charges by dint solely to what we saw on Tuesday. Right. And that's why when Alvin Bragg was pressed over and over in the presser he did after about what these other big looming felonies are, he was like, yeah, no, I'm not going to tell you. He doesn't have to tell us. Why would he? Right. He's trying to get a conviction in a court of New York jurors, not in a court of public opinion. And I understand that people want to have the trial now on primetime television, but like that's not how this works. So I was going to ask you the follow-up question, but I think you've already answered it, which is, you know, there are two teams manifestly screaming at each other. One is saying, you know, you come for the king, you'd best not miss. Bragg missed, woe is us. And then there's another team that is saying, look, this is an airtight, eminently winnable white collar crime case. Everyone should be happy. And you're saying neither of those things is actually true because we don't know what the hell is coming. Right. Or I would say neither of those things are necessarily true. Yeah. At this moment. At this moment, right? Like it's possible that like we'll look back and say, oh, well, we should. That that camp was right. (laughs) But the first thing they teach you when you're doing bar review for the New York bar is that New York is weird. (laughs) Um, And New York procedure is weird. That's true of civil procedure and criminal procedure. New York courts are weird. I mean, the trial court's called the Supreme Court for crying out loud. And so I just I I think everyone should take a breath, both because more things are surely going to happen in New York. And because it at least seems possible that even the New York events are going to be overtaken by further proceedings elsewhere. Right. So this is you reminding us yet again, uh, a through line on this show. Courts ain't sports. Uh, They happen in their own internal, sometimes glacial time. But sort of sitting and cheering as though you're watching an episode of Law & Order is not a thing that you can do in real time. Yeah. Yes. These are not tidy 46-minute commercial break plot arcs. and, 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 you know, I, I realize that that's not what people want to hear. But all the time on Twitter, people are complaining about how slow the legal system is. I'm like, well, you know, there actually are good reasons for that, even if at this moment they're inconvenient. I do want to ask you one Supreme Court-related question. You've already hinted at the best is yet to come. We've got Fonnie Willis. We've got Jack Smith. But the question I want to ask you is, how does this or anything get to the Supreme Court? Is there going to be some ruling in some discrete case that rockets its way up to Clarence Thomas's desk? 
by way of a private jet paid for by Harlan Crow. Um, so hey, rockets, I, I mean, rockets. <laughs> they, nobody is alleging he gets a rocket. Be fair. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, uh, you know, not in its current posture. I mean, the, you know, state criminal cases are the class of lawsuits that actually have the most hurdles to getting to the U.S. Supreme Court. Some of those are procedural. It's just not the norm that criminal defendants get to bring what we call interlocutory or sort of non-final appeals in criminal cases, that's especially true in New York. I think there are two ways this speeds up, and one of them would be within this case and one of them would be outside of it. So way number one within the case is there is a very old federal statute that allows for the removal even of state criminal prosecutions to federal court if the defendant is a federal officer or is claiming some defense tied to his status as a federal officer. I have no idea what Trump's federal officer defense would be, but that's never stopped him from (laughs) trying these things. And the way that procedure works, you know, the removal actually happens automatically. And then you fight in the federal district court, presumably in Manhattan, about whether the removal was proper. And that you could imagine, you know, blowing up and going to the Second Circuit and then the Supreme Court over whether Trump actually had a viable federal defense. The other thing he could do, which would be even more disruptive is he could try to bring a standalone civil suit in federal court seeking to enjoin or block the New York State criminal proceeding. If he tried that, he would run headlong into the doctrine that federal courts students and nobody else know, which is younger abstention. But Younger versus Harris is this 1971 Supreme Court case that basically says it's not appropriate for federal courts to use injunctions to block ongoing state criminal cases unless some really, really egregious circumstances are present. Again, I don't think that would be an especially viable claim, but it's not frivolous. And, you know, that could gum up the works if you have a standalone lawsuit filed in New York that then itself gets appealed. And so so there are a couple of ways this gets to the Supreme Court, perhaps relatively quickly, but not through sort of the Supreme Court for New York County, right? It would have to be some move to sort of get this case either blocked or removed to federal court, and then what happens after that? Steve, I wanted to talk about the ProPublica piece reporting on Justice Thomas accepting these luxury vacations undisclosed from GOP billionaire megadonor Harlan Crow. But I also wanted to just point out that not one little thing in this phenomenally reported story actually surprised me. Not the super yachts, not the jets or the chefs or the sitting around with Mark Paletta and Leonard Leo. Nothing. The art. I think the art surprised me (laughs) because it's tacky. But I also want to talk about your book. I guess the reason it connects up to themes in your book is that, of course, Thomas disclosed not a lick of it. And it does seem to be of a piece with the general argument of the book that justices just do what they want when they want because they want to. And the problem is they do a lot of stuff and they don't tell us about it. So maybe through that lens, do you want to just give us your thoughts on this Harlan Crow story, which in any other civilized country would be front page, horrifying, shattering news that requires investigation? <laughs> but investigation by whom? Yeah, yeah. I think it was last week that there was this fairly sort of weird release from Senator Whitehouse Mm -hmm. um, about how the Judicial Conference of the United States, this is the sort of governing body of the administrative arm of the federal courts. The Judicial Conference, basically, Chief Justice Roberts and the chief judges of each court of appeals and a handful of district judges 
had revised the travel disclosure policies for federal judges and justices. And my reaction to that was, what was this in response to? I think we now have some sense of what it might have been in response to, not just here, but in other contexts. You know, I think the broad thematic point here, which is not surprising, but is worth repeating, is that there are so many ways in which the Supreme Court as an institution is completely cloistered. I'm going to try to avoid the shadow metaphor because I've kind of overused it a little bit, but in ways in which a healthy institution, even with six conservative justices who are doing what they're doing to the substantive law of the United States, would still be acting and functioning in a much different way. And, And I really do think that all of it, right, the piece about sort of non-disclosures of these kinds of travel plans, these kinds of travel supports, the justice's own hostility to binding themselves to an ethics code, all of it is of a piece with an institution that's just not worried a whit about the other two branches. And the recent phenomenon of the shadow docket, the sort of the surge of emergency rulings and sort of unexplained orders with these broad effects, is really part of this much larger story of Congress just totally taking its hands off of the courts. The question, I think, is what is it going to take to create any kind of bipartisan consensus that without touching the justices, without you know changing the composition of the court, without going after the rulings they're handing down, there is still something pretty significant in the kinds of sort of institutional reforms that would make the court more transparent. We wouldn't react this way to these stories like, oh, I'm not surprised to find that there was more shady stuff happening in the dark. Right, right. And what's strange to me is Justice Thomas's office did not answer any of our questions. And Harlan Crow was just like, no, but he's my buddy. Like, I love him. And it's amazing that this is right. This is the the, the Justice Alito uh, uh, line. This is Justice Scalia during Duckgate, you know, the duck hunting, which is just like, I can't help it if I'm awesome and everyone wants to give me stuff. And it's just so, I think indicative of the thing you're arguing in your book, which is like, but you're not that awesome that you don't need to have rules. And it's so weird to me that there's this just monarchic tone to this whole conversation that seems to be its own defense. Well, the point is like, you know, let us judge for yourselves just how awesome you are if you tell us all the awesome things you're doing. Right. And there's this common trope like, well, you know, we don't make everybody do this. And like, no, we don't. But like, we also don't give everybody life tenure. Right. I got into this little sort of spat right last week with Judge Kaczmarek, where it's like, you know, the temerity of a law professor to suggest that people are taking advantage of the of the federal courts right? When it's like, well, why are you a federal judge going after the professor and like making fun of him? Like, I mean, the, you know, either you agree with the argument or you don't agree with the argument. Your job as a judge is not to weigh in on like the political valence of it. And so I think it's just, to me, Dolly, it all stems from the same basic disease, which is that for whatever reason, since the 1980s, um, legislative supervision and oversight of the judiciary has become a complete non-starter. And this is a really sort of superficial analogy, but I actually think it it resonates at least with me. It's exactly what's happened with the war powers, where, you know, Congress completely divesting itself of responsibility for supervision and regulation of how the executive branch uses military force has led to just this increasing accumulation of unilateral, unreviewable power by the executive branch in contexts that bother us, many of us at least, less because we don't see it. It's happening over there. 
right? And it's happening across administrations, Republicans and Democrats alike. That's what's happening with the courts. I mean, you know, the when the Supreme Court hands down a big decision or does something controversial or a story like this breaks, they fear no consequences. And, you know, there's there's something about how the fear and consequences would make the court healthier. And I just think we've lost that thread completely in all of our modern discourse. I, I was going to ask you, Steve, what it feels like when a federal judge goes after your extensive academic work um, <laughs> on the actual problem of judge shopping. And he does it uh, like a kind of like a, a, a mean girl uh, and how it is that you manage to respond. And I should just tell folks, Steve put up a really temperate and sane and thoughtful response in the pages of Slate.com. But I do think it is weird when you are having to evince judicial temperament and judges are not. I don't know if you have anything you want to add uh, or if we should move on, but that really is an astounding abuse of life tenure. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish it were isolated. I mostly got a kick out of the Kaczmarek episode, I have to confess. It, it bothers me not as an attack on me. It bothers me as what it says about the current state of our federal judiciary. And, and I think it's the old line, right? Never go to war with someone who buys ink by the barrel. I don't even buy the ink. The Twitter ink is free. The problem is that it's a microcosm dolly of the larger point, which is, you know, someone like me comes along and says, hey, here's my evidence. Here are my receipts about what's happening and why this is a problem. Okay. Your job as a judge is to decide whether you are persuaded that these receipts are proof of a problem or not, and to tell us why. Mocking the person who brought the receipts without actually responding to what they demonstrate, without suggesting that the data is misleading, which it isn't, without suggesting that Texas isn't judge shopping, which it publicly admits it is, without going all the way back to Kyle Duncan and Stanford, it's the same phenomenon, right? It's like judges are not supposed to be in the trenches in the, you know, sort of partisan political battles of the day. And I think the more that they view that as part of their job, indeed, the more that they view that as like how they stand out for the next administration to try to get a promotion, the more we've completely lost sight of why we have an independent federal judiciary. And the more that I think the absence of meaningful oversight, the absence of meaningful accountability rears its head. We're going to take a quick break. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, 
and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. And more now with Professor Steve Vladek. So I want to turn to your book, um, The Shadow Dot. Speaking of. Speaking of, um, because I, I do a little bit worry that listeners are going to think it's just about, you know, the quote unquote shadow docket, the way you and I have talked about it for the last couple of years, which is these emergency late night orders. But of course, it's about, as you've just said, the ways in which uh, the Supreme Court has arrogated unto itself these sort of very secret, weird technical powers in ways that the public just doesn't know about. And that's not just the shadow docket. But also, I think with this coda that you've now um, mentioned twice, which is, and nobody tries to stop them. So much of the narrative in the book was actually new to me, which is quite embarrassing, because I actually like to think I cover this stuff. But can you just walk me through the argument? And I think let's start with your first chapter on certiorari and and how cert grants, which seem like this kind of benign power, right? I'm going to hear this case. I'm not going to. Got it. Got it. Need it. Right. But it's actually not benign. And it's actually (laughs) kind of allowed the justices to rule our world. So can you just walk us through your first chapter and how cert evolves as a way of kind of setting the table for what the book is attempting to explain? Yeah. So chapter one, I, I will confess, chapter one is my favorite chapter of it's, the book. It's good. Um, it's good. It's, I, just, I had so much fun writing it. So chapter one is basically a history of the Supreme Court's jurisdiction, which sounds completely uninteresting and like boring beyond all get out. And actually, it turns out that the I, I don't know if he's a protagonist or an antagonist. I think folks will have different views about this. But the, the main character is William Howard Taft. Um, because it was Taft, even before he was chief justice, which, by the way, he was desperate to be, like, could care less about being president. He wanted to be chief justice. Even while he's president, right, Taft is thinking and writing and giving speeches about how to make the court into less of a Supreme Court of Appeals that just hears all the stuff that falls on it and just acts like a circuit court, but just with the ability to go last— and more like a constitutional court that is sort of above and apart from the fray of ordinary judicial business. And so it's Taft who really pushes through in 1925 these massively important but entirely technical reforms to how the Supreme Court structures its docket, which centers around certiorari and the idea that the justices should be allowed to pick and choose the cases that they're going to hear and to just sort of not take any case they don't want to. And it's defended in 1925 as a way of sort of solving the problem of docket crowding. Taft says, we're going to ignore the frivolous cases and we're going to just take the important cases. But of course, importance is subjective, right? Congress gives them the power without imposing any limits. Congress does not provide criteria for how the court's going to exercise its discretion. And so what happens is starting in 1925, we see a remarkable shift in the court's docket toward cases the justices want, toward issues within the cases the justices want. One of the things Taft does after basically lying to Congress about it is he says, not only can we pick and choose cases, we can pick and choose which issues we're going to decide. 
within these cases. And, you know, it's it's not attacking, it's later. The justices even start rewriting the questions so that, you know, there are cases on the Supreme Court's docket right now where the Supreme Court is deciding a question that the justices themselves wrote that no party presented, and then the justices chose to grant cert on the question as they have written it. And, you know, the goal of chapter one, right, is not necessarily suggest that, like, that's net bad. You need some mechanism, right, when you have that many cases coming to the Supreme Court to pick and choose how you're going to decide them. It's just to suggest that that mechanism is all about power, and it's all about sort of your conception of the Supreme Court as an institution. And all of the big decisions are made behind the scenes. They're made in conference when the court decides whether to grant or deny. They are never explained, right? The court provides no rationale ever for a grant or a denial of cert. And, you know, I think the too much value of our contemporary coverage of the court takes at sort of face value that these cases are just the cases the court is hearing, as opposed to the cases that these justices chose to take to, so they could resolve the questions that they want to decide within those cases. Like, that is an important caveat to, I think, any conversation about the work of the court. Yeah, it, it's so important, Steve, because I think what what you've just done is distilled the problem I've been having this year on the show, which is... Why do we take for granted that the court needed to hear affirmative action again this year? Why do we take for granted that the court needed to hear 303 Creative, a case that actually hasn't happened? And I think that we we start from this presumption, right? This building that's built in the 1930s and made to look like it's 500 years old. Also Taft. Yeah, like he was really kind of creating a fiction in real time that we all now are like, well, you know, I mean, it's a temple. What are we going to do? It's been there since the founding. And so I love what you're saying, because it's a way of explaining that when we start the conversation on the first Monday of October saying, well, these are the cases that needed to be heard this year. Here, because here's what's on the menu tonight. America's waiting for answers. And what you're saying is that's entirely self-constructed. And we don't interrogate that. And we don't ask ourselves, huh, super weird that they're hearing abortion again for the fifth time, right? It's crazy. So I, I, I think that's important. And I want you to maybe, can you move from that to your chapter on the machinery of death and the death penalty? Because I think that, you know, we can all stipulate the court needs an emergency docket, especially if you're executing people yeah. in the dark of night. Right. But right. your point, I think, is much deeper about how the death penalty docket becomes kind of the basis for how we get the shadow docket we have today. Yeah, I mean, so I'm so glad you, you sort of framed this as the book is not just about emergency applications, mm-hmm, right? Because mm-hmm. I think the, the sort of the gist of the book is that we look at the court as the sum total of its merits decisions, and we should be looking at the court much more holistically. And that includes emergency applications, right? There is an attempt by the conservatives to rebrand the shadow docket, the emergency docket. That actually misses what the shadow docket is, right? So the cert story is out there. It's been out there. It's, you know, it's not going anywhere. The emergency story really, this is the thing I actually learned the most while I was writing the book. Because I I was trying to figure out, so when did things change? Like there was this old school model where if you had an emergency, you found your local circuit justice, sometimes maybe in Yakima, Washington, right? And you get him to issue a cursory, unexplained ruling that just temporarily adjusted the status quo. And that would be that, right? And there'd be no ruling by the full court. There'd be no long-term impact, from this one-page order. So everything changes in 1980. 
and it changes in direct response to the Supreme Court's reinstitution of the death penalty in 1976. Because, you know, for folks who are sort of loosely familiar, right, so the court imposes what is effectively a nationwide moratorium on capital punishment in 1972, but can't decide what the problem is with the death penalty. And so it sort of reverses itself four years later and says, well, you know what? The problem is not capital punishment. The problem is that you guys were doing it the wrong way. And so as long as you follow these 47 different rules we're about to lay down for capital cases, we'll let you execute people. Well, Dahlia, those 47 rules have to be uh, enforced. And the way that states were treating capital cases, they were very aggressively setting execution dates so that there were plenty of death row prisoners whose first chance to meaningfully litigate one of the 47 new rules that the Supreme Court articulated is through an emergency stay, where you know the thing that you're trying to do is get some court to block the execution for long enough to make sure that the 47 rules were followed. And so we see this remarkable uptick where in the October 1983 term, the full court hears 83 applications from death row inmates seeking to stay executions. Just for contrast, there's a representative year in the 1960s where the court heard four. Um, And so you see this explosion and the court reacts by taking power away from circuit justices, right? So it's in 1980 when the court starts referring all potentially divisive applications to the full court. That means no more in-chambers oral arguments. It means far fewer in-chambers opinions. Instead, the full court's going to decide these cases. And because it's the full court, they're going to say even less. So the rise of completely unexplained full court orders is a direct response to death penalty. The court stops adjourning when it rises for its summer recess. That might sound like the most pedantic, irrelevant point. It's actually really important because it means that the full court can rule over the summer, which it couldn't before 1980. Even from a super Uh, yacht, they can rule over the summer. Even from a super yacht. But like this has this profound change in how the justices approach emergency applications that no one notices because for the better part of 35 years, it all happens in the unique and surreal space of the death penalty. And so there's just this mentality that like, I mean, if you're a death penalty advocate, yes, you you understand what's happening, but you also think this is just about death, right? You ask people who clerked on the court in the 80s or 90s or 2000s, like, what was the shadow docket? They'll say it was just the death cases. And so the shift in the last five or six years is not using the shadow docket in ways that had never been used before. It's taking the major important problematic shifts in how the court behaved in capital cases that had hitherto been limited to capital cases and applying it to everything, applying it to nationwide immigration policies, state COVID mitigation policies, congressional district maps. I mean, everything under the sun, where if it's divisive, it's going to the full court. Our norm is not to explain anything, right? And we're going to follow that norm, hew to that line, even when the lower courts have written like hundreds of pages about why they ruled the way they did. We can't be bothered to tell them why they're wrong. And can you also, because I think another shift happens and and you kind of clock this again, pretty, I think, bolstered by the data. But another thing that really shifts is that the Trump administration starts to use emergency petitions in a way that is new. And I just think, you know, because uh, as you've said, the effort is made to say, oh, it has ever been thus. There's always been emergency petitions and they've always unspooled this way. It's just that 
Vladek doesn't like what they're doing. <laughs> so can you just walk us through how the Trump administration actually gooses this whole process? The segue from the capital cases to sort of the last couple of years is Trump. The data, I think, is revealing, although the story is even more true than the numbers. So one of the reasons why the shadow docket had been almost exclusively in the emergency context a death docket is because litigants didn't really think to ask the court to do more through emergency applications, right? The Solicitor General, the most regular litigant, probably the most privileged litigant in the Supreme Court during the Bush and Obama administration, so that's 16 years of two very different administrations, goes to the court for emergency relief a total of eight times. And seven of those have no public dissent when the court rules, right? I mean, seven of those were like either, yes, we're all in or no, we're not. Only one of those is actually ideologically divisive. So once every other year, the SG is going to the court and it's not usually on headline bait, right? Like social policy drama. Um, Trump comes along and asks the court for emergency relief 41 times in four years. You were there, right? Like there were moments where it felt like the Trump administration was filing multiple emergency applications a week. So much so that the Solicitor General's office creates a fifth deputy just to deal with emergency applications. And the unifying theme of these applications is a concerted attempt to basically use the court to allow the administration to keep enforcing policies that lower courts had blocked, either while the case worked its way to the Supreme Court or perhaps in lieu of it ever getting to the Supreme Court. So travel ban 2.0, the military transgender ban, the asylum ban, the third country rule. I mean, there are so many examples of policies that, Dahlia, no court ever actually says are legal. The border wall, right? But where the policies are allowed to be carried out because they've got these unsigned, unexplained stays. I really think, and the book tries to argue, that's what really shoves this snowball down the mountain, where the court, perhaps not thinking carefully about the implications of granting relief so often, just keeps doing it and doing it. And the repetition itself creates precedent that as soon as Trump is out of office, other parties start trying to to follow. Right. The court becomes the like, but mom, court, right? (laughs) Just (laughs) we'll short circuit the process because we want a thing. And there are sort of superficial attempts to defend this, right? So it's cast in some quarters as the court just dealing with lower courts that are part of the, you'll remember this, this, this chestnut, the judicial resistance to President Trump. That's an ironic claim since some of these lower court decisions were written by pretty dyed-in-the-wool conservative. I mean, when Jay Bybee is writing the opinion about why you lose, like, that's not a liberal judge behaving badly. But also part of it was the claim was this was a response to nationwide injunctions and the proliferation of nationwide injunctions. That's not true descriptively. Only about half of the applications involved nationwide injunctions. But even if it was, take a case and say so, Supreme Court. Right. Shockingly, since Biden's come to office, the court has all of a sudden been perfectly fine, leaving intact, refusing to stay nationwide injunctions of Biden administration policies. And so I think two things happen. One, Trump's cases, the supply sort of supercharges the shadow docket. Two, you know, Dahlia, for the first time, we have enough of a data set that, you know, people like you and me can look at it and say, this is more than just, you know, one off bad decisions. This is actually a pattern that actually merits One, study, and two, conclusions that we can derive from the pattern of behavior. So the end of the book is kind of an elegy 
about legitimacy. It actually kind of reminds me, I, I, I felt as though the Dobbs dissent was an elegy for the court's legitimacy. And, you know, you and I have been kind of working this SCOTUS legitimacy beat for, for quite some time now. And I think there's a, a series of attacks including from Justice Alito, suggesting that what you do when you, as I said, carefully document this with data and history, and then you're accused of doing some homeland-style springboard conspiracy theory to create what Justice Alito called in his speech about the shadow docket, a, quote, catchy and sinister term, shadow docket, which he says, quote, has been used to portray the court as having been captured by a dangerous cabal that resorts to sneaky and improper methods to get its ways, end quote. And the argument, again, is that it's you, Professor Vladek, <laughs> delegitimizing the court. So I, I would love for you to give me, I know this whole conversation has, in effect, been that, but can you give me your best possible rebuttal to the critics of your academic work? And I would say to this, <laughs> it seems to me, data-driven academic work, who say that it's you that is tarnishing the court in the public eye and me, that is a crybaby because we don't like the merits decisions. And can you just try maybe to land this plane on why I, I, you and I have said this to each other before, but like, actually, we want the court to be legitimate. Like, we don't want to have a country where we're duking it out on the streets. So we want a legitimate court because you cannot have rule of law without a court. It's not your project to make the court look bad. Or at least it's not my project to make the court look bad in order to sort of destroy it. The cheesy reference I completely appropriate is I, I, I actually come to, to save Caesar, not to bury him. And I guess, I mean, I, there's a Taylor Swift thing, right? It's me. I'm the problem. It's me. I guess I have two responses. So the first response is um, one of the things that has been noticeably lacking from any of the organized responses to my work has been any coherent countervailing defenses of the court's work. When Alito gives a speech and says, we're not treating these as precedential, and I show you the order in which they yell at the Ninth Circuit for failing to follow an unsigned, unexplained order, you got to come with more than just, you're, you know, you're, you're being mean to the justices. So, you know, if there's a coherent through line that explains this pattern, no one's offered it yet. And instead, what there are, there are sort of scattershot defenses of different slices of this that actually don't hold up when you see the court not following those same principles, right, in cases where they should have applied. And then the other part of this is just the notion that, like, none of it matters. You know, Will Bode, who coined the term shadow docket in the context of the Supreme Court, gave a talk last fall where he, trying to describe the current court, if not to defend it, basically said, these are justices who are committed to the law and not politics, right, to a greater extent than their, than their predecessors. And if that means sort of breaking some procedural eggs to get to the pure substantive legal principles they want to get to, so be it. And so I guess like where I end up, Dolly, is what this is really about. It's a, refer it's a referendum on the value of process and whether we think process matters. Because, you know, the notion that like if you can't defend the court's procedural shenanigans, all you can do is dismiss them. And so all we're left with is like, oh, the process doesn't matter. And I'm here to say like process matters not just because – I'm a liberal and they're conservative. Process matters because process is the best defense we have against charges that these are just partisan politicians in robes. Process is how we actually have any faith 
that there are neutral principles governing how the courts are acting and not just ruling for the red team and ruling against the blue team. And I just think that like I'm a little horrified that that's such a partisan position apparently to have these days. I'm heartened by the fact that John Roberts in at least some cases appears to share it. The story of the John Roberts dissents on the shadow docket I actually think is one that ought to be told a lot more loudly where he's joining Elena Kagan in an opinion that is castigating the other five conservatives for procedural shortcuts. And so the question is like, how do we, I mean, this this is going to sound really silly. How do we find more John Roberts? And I don't mean like, how do we get more judges like John Roberts? I mean, like, where are the John Roberts among the conservative thought leaders out there who actually understand that the court's institutional legitimacy is essential to even a long-term conservative vision of the role of the court and what it can accomplish? And I realize it's a little cynical to make this about self-interest, but I don't understand why it isn't in the interest of those who are very content with the current majority to solidify the power of that majority for decades, as opposed to the sort of, you know, to borrow Leah Littman's term, as opposed to the YOLO, we're here, we're dressed up, let's go, when maybe five years from now, you've actually undermined your ability to keep doing that. And so my question, and I, I don't have a good answer to this, is how do we build a story about the court that suggests that it's very unhealthy as an institution, even if you have no trouble with the substantive rulings they're handing down on the merits docket. That's why I think the Thomas story is such a fitting bow to wrap this around, because that is just one of the dozens of examples in the last three years alone of signs that all is not well, that something is rotten in Denmark having nothing to do with the result in Dobbs, the result in Brew, and the result in West Virginia versus EPA. And that's the conversation that I really hope the book helps to spark and to precipitate, not just among people who think like us, Dahlia, but people who don't. Your last chapter is called Read the Opinion, which is Amy Coney Barrett's defense of, you know, we're not doing anything in the dark. And, you know, the, the question is like, show us the opinion. <laughs> Where is it? I can't find it. Is it in the couch cushions? Like, did Clarence Thomas take it on the jet? Well, she gave that speech two days before the 5-4 ruling in the clean water case where she's the decisive vote and there's no opinion to read. It's the, the, there's, a, there's a lot of self-owning going on here. And I just I think it gets back to the same problem, which is they're just not remotely worried that the institution's in any trouble from anyone who matters. Steve Vladek is the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas School of Law and a nationally recognized expert on the federal courts, constitutional law, national security law, and military justice. His new book, The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic, goes on sale in May. Order it now. Steve, you uh, are always just crystal clear and urgent and funny at the same time. So it is a treat uh, to have you on the show. And uh, really, congratulations and best of luck with the book. Thanks, Dolly. It's always great to get to talk to you in any forum. That's a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. And thank you so very much for your letters and your questions. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com. And you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of podcasts at Slate. And Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. 
We'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. And until then, take good care. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.